Episode 87 Personal Recollections from Dr. David Baker, a Brit working in NASA and private space sector in the 1980s. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Throughout his professional career, David Baker has experienced first-hand the space race, the Cold War, and the humanity's first steps to explore the solar system and beyond. Dr. David Baker was born in England during World War II and has been involved with the USA since childhood, first attending a U.S. school in England and then studying in the USA under a scholarship program sponsored by Senator Clinton P. Anderson. He returned to the U.S., and worked for NASA on various programs, from Gemini to the Space Shuttle. He was present at Mission Control in 1970 and witnessed the drama of Apollo 13 firsthand. David has contributed to the government as a subject matter specialist on space, communications for the war in Vietnam, the first Gulf War, and made several trips to the Soviet Union, looking at potential use of Soviet launch vehicles for Western payloads. In 1984, he set up a space consultancy to help recruit international payload specialists for the space shuttle. He supported the aspiring nations such as Australia and India in developing their national space infrastructure using the emerging commercial space sector. He joined the British Interplanetary Society in 1965 published his first article in the Society's journal Spaceflight in 1969, and since 2011 he's been the editor of that very journal Spaceflight. To date he's published remarkably 110 books by the close of 2018, with a few more in the pipeline for 2019 to mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. David, welcome to AstroTalk UK. Thank you very much, Gabir. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. So, your association with the USA started very early on. How much of your childhood did you spend in the USA? Well, it, <laughs> you say it started, yes, in fact, I was born in the war. My father was in the Royal Air Force, and it was apparently, although I can't quite recall it then, that, the, that actually my mother was, was lifted up by U.S. Air Force airmen um, into the back of a wagon that took my mother to hospital where, where I was born a few hours later. So I really, you know, had that association from before I was even born. But uh, I don't know, looking back, it, it just seems as though I was always tilted uh, by some fate to be orientated toward the United States. And, uh, and so it was through um, my childhood, from the age of nine, I went to a school in, in Hertfordshire, which... Uh, which was run by by an American church, um, and it was it was the Stanborough Park School in Hertfordshire, which then uh, was a very large complex that included a sanatorium for healthcare. It included the Grano's Food Factory for healthy foods. Um, it included a printing works, and so I grew up in an extraordinarily wonderful environment of learning and dignity and respect, and I will never never forget those those wonderful days so i was very very fortunate <laughs> and how old were you when you went for the first time to the u.s uh i was 18 years old um at that time we were in the depths of the cold war and although i was brought up in a not exactly a pacifist environment my my father was a career royal air force uh chap but um 
essentially the the upbringing that that I had was was uh, was not at all militaristic, and yet I was drawn very much toward um, the necessary, as I saw it certainly then, the necessary um, political and personal defence against what I saw as being a regime in the in, in Soviet communism as equally destructive for humanity as the Nazi regime which had been such had such a devastating influence on my father who came back um from the relief of Belson. And so I think I'd probably look at it slightly slightly more nuanced today, but but I was very, very strong on the need to serve the principles that I felt were right and correct. What what are your experiences, what are your recollections of Sputnik itself? <laughs> well of course I I was mad on aviation and astronomy. Um, there, there was no space program, but I knew that the forward momentum and inertia of, of both the technocracy that emerged out of the Second World War, uh, nuclear weapons, rocket propulsion, guided missiles, high-performance aircraft, the jet engine. Um, I can remember the explosion of news of, of man breaking the sound barrier, uh, which was some time after it had been achieved because it was kept secret for several months. So when Sputnik came, wow, this was, this was really... It, it was like the call-up papers. <laughs> did, did you see it, uh, naked eye? The military did you see it yourself? What? Sputnik it, uh, or I in the didn't. sky? No, no, uh-huh. no, no, I didn't actually see it going over... Um, but uh, I think, uh, of course, at that time I I was in the UK, and 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 so the um, the uh, the opportunity and the sort of skies we get in watching satellites going over. I have to say, I have to really give a huge shout out for the Kettering Space Group, who, who were very, very much, and I came upon their work many times later, much later, when I knew the impact and the vital importance they had played in developing in the United States, in Congress, um, and in the Congressional Research Service, that there was a tremendous amount of information provided by British so-called amateurs. It's, it's, it's completely inappropriate to call them amateurs because these guys were at the forefront at the cutting edge of being able to track Russian satellites. And the Kettering Group, the famous Kettering Group, was from the Kettering Group, uh, Kettering Grammar School, and yes. Geoffrey Perry, who led that group. And uh, there's so much written about uh, um, the work they did in these days before we had the internet and you're right it was a very um, influential group at the time Um, so you had an interest in the new technologies as they were evolving then and astronomy Um, Mm. on the astronomy front did you actually have a telescope or an observatory did you try yeah 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 yeah, I did It, it was a little four inch reflector um, which, which you know, was was a great step up from naked eye, um, but uh, it was it was um, really not the kind of instrument that that I was happy with. I always wanted more and better, um, and 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 it was a culture in those days that that if you didn't have it, you worked for it. My parents did not have excess money. Um, they they worked very very hard indeed to put me through school. Um, I was born in Lincolnshire and moved out when I was nine because my parents felt they wanted they wanted me to have a broader range of opportunities. But certainly, I, I felt you know, with regard to telescopes, if I needed one, I had to go out and get a job and work for it. So I did a lot of jobs during school vacations, um, which took me into a lot of different paths, which were really seriously interesting, and gave me, I think, a view of life which I wouldn't have had had it not been for those experiences. So in many ways, my school years into my teens were more vital than at any other part of my life. I I agree with you. I think the the mindset in those days, even if it wasn't immediately after the, the war and the difficulties that that generates anyway, there was a different mindset, and we, you know, the Patrick Moore generation uh, telescope yeah. making was just a routine done thing. And yeah. these days, um, not only is the mindset changed, but there's just so much available at reasonably low cost as well. To 
realize that nobody was going to do it for you if you didn't do it for yourself. I think that was, and, and that was an important part of the ethic that I think all of us of that age grew up with. It was not the kind of world you'd ever want to have young people growing up in. There was rationing, there was, there was um, a, a complete absence of the sort of materials which are considered vital for, for maturing young people today, and rightfully they are essential, but, but we just had to, had to cut and paste, as it were, <laughs> ourselves from what was around. And, and yes, it was that, yes. And your PhD, that was also in space science astronomy. Earth and planetary physics, and I did some studies, and, and this was while I was very fortunate. I went to the United States, um, and, and I have to say uh, that contrary to popular belief, um, that was perpetuated through Hollywood films that the Americans always thought they were the ones that won the war and that, well, they, they saved the UK, etc., etc. Um, I did not find that. I found completely the opposite. And when when I went to the United States, I, it, it, it's what I called the Moses factor. The waters parted. And they said, you're from Britain? And, and there was that sense of awe because, because most of the people that were in decision-making structures uh, when I went to the United States, had served in the war. And a lot of them had served in Britain, and they'd seen the kind of conditions under which the people of the British Isles had had to survive. And the Americans respected that, and they really, really had a tremendous regard for British people. And so when I went, I really rode in on the back of, of what I call the Moses factor, the waters parted. So, okay, it's the mid-1960s, you've got your PhD, um, yeah. When did you arrive in the USA, and, and is that was that uh, NASA job the first job you had in, yes. in the states? Yes, it was. It was all because of the scholarship program which Clinton Anderson, who was chair of the Senate Space Committee, um, and was very robustly forthright in advancing the cause of NASA. And he had a scholarship program which which had been organised through the Defence Department. Um, and also with NATO, the Department of Defense, really, which formed in 1947. So that was relatively new. Um, the U.S. Air Force was only independent from the Army since 47, and I came in on that. Democratic representation by elected government officials. It was the broader aspects that we now take for granted and, and are fighting through very much in the politics of today as to how much does government have the right to act independently, etc. So, so I began to pick up all this awareness, and from the time I was doing my work from 1964, <clears throat> and I became very much a part of NASA from 1965, working on the Gemini program, Gemini 5, was the first mission where essentially I, I was ushered in and told to watch, but don't touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so thought, you know, well, this is great. And that actually took me from science. It took me right away from science into engineering because I didn't want to get into postdoc studies and do all of that, all of that focused work. And it wasn't a lack of, of, of concentration or focus or tenacity, quite the reverse. I saw a broader application of science and came to really understand science as the basic fundamental bedrock upon which engineering principles are built manifest in productive form through technology. And it was the technology aspect that took me to mission control. And because of the upward surge in recruiting and because of the need for, for human resources on, on the ground, they were just taking anybody and everybody. And so I, I, I really had, and, and, and I really, really seriously mean that. I, I would not like to, to reflectively prejudge whether I'd ever have had any of these opportunities had it not been for the massive recruiting program brought people from Canada, from Australia, and other places in Europe as well. What would you describe as your first job with NASA? What was the role you were performing? Well, essentially, it, it, was data it was data analysis and verification, and that took me very quickly into the Mission Planning and Analysis Division, MPAD, which grew to great size and importance during the Apollo program, because essentially it was looking at the whole structures of how you plan missions from the program objectives, uh -huh. okay, and, and I guess in simplest form and without a tortuous discourse on every single integrating step, the moon goal from Kennedy was a classic example of what we were doing because immediately prior to the election of Kennedy in 1960, 
there was a very strong group within NASA, and I was very, very aware of this even even over here, because I should say that 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 while I was at school, while I was in England, while I was living in Hertfordshire as a teenager, I I was was that most precocious of children <laughs> who was who was prolifically writing off to anybody and everybody in the United States. Initially, I wanted brochures and pictures and and anything to do with aircraft and rockets and 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 I simply did not feel that there was a ceiling through which I had to to uh, request permission to ascend through. And you know, it began when I was when I was virtually almost in short trousers because I, at the time before I reached my teens, I was I was about ten, eleven, twelve. I was writing to to some wonderful aviation historians in Britain, and uh, they gave me such enormous help. Wonderful names like Bruce Robertson, for instance, was an aviation historian, and and so that ethic of just being bursting with enthusiasm, wanting to get a part of it, it came good during my work as it matured up into the mission planning and analysis division at NASA, and then all of a sudden you had within one week you had Gagarin um, being the first man in space. Uh, and then, of course, you had the political disaster of the Bay of Pigs, uh, which was the failed invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles led by the CIA, a program that Eisenhower had initiated, but which Kennedy authorized. And so here was a president who would come into power on the rhetoric that he was never again going to allow America to be embarrassed by national upsets like Sputnik. And here he was within four months of his office of being uh, embarrassed by exactly the same kind of upstaging from Russia. And so I was very much involved with helping to massage the the mission op- opportunities and options. And that took me to a very quickly to what was known as the Apollo Applications Program, which resulted in the J-series missions in Apollo 15, 16, and 17. Uh, I think some of the influences and experiences we have as children are uh, the most influential. If you go back to the period when you were a teenager and writing off to various uh, people in authority and in historians, if you had not got the kind of responses that you did, do you think that would have changed your career? I don't necessarily think it would, but I know in the larger remit of that question, um, if it had not been for the fact that my immaturity and my naivety and my total lack of experience and what I thought I knew about but very quickly came to realize I didn't know anything about at all, really, in the serious big grown-up world, unless people had respected what I was trying to achieve through those very early years and treated me as they treated their peers, which I was certainly not, Uh I think I would have been discouraged to the point where I would have settled for second best and probably been dimmed in my gritty enthusiasm to push on because it's only looking back I realize that so many people tolerated me when I was young in when I was really seriously young and gave me space and I, I mentioned one name a little while ago Bruce Robertson and I was writing to him um, questioning various aspects of aviation history in books that he had written and he treated me like a knowledgeable adult and he knew that I was a boy growing up. And at the time, you think you are mature enough to be able to face down people who have achieved great things, and whether it's in historical archiving or writing or books or whether it's in the sciences or engineering. If, if you are treated like that, it's only looking back you realize, my God, what, you, you know, they obviously had a lot of faith and they obviously had a lot of tolerance to put out with me. And metaphorically take hold of me and help guide me into those spheres. So I think that was vital. And that has helped to inform the way I think about young people and the vital importance. It's about inspirationally respecting open views. One of the phrases I I, I think sums up the whole thing is that when you're that young, you think you have been given a God-given right to change the world. And within the early years of the space program, we were being given blank checks to actually do it. And suddenly you realize, my God, you know, it need not have been that way. And the fact that we were encouraged in the way we were and the tolerance and the help when I was at school, because I wanted 
to have so much material around me that it can inform the studies that I was, or the, the, the pursuits that I was involved with at school and and going to a school where we were encouraged to stand up and give presentations, communication, and that convincing people only starts when you've convinced yourself of the things that you believe in and the things that you aspire to. But other other experiences that never would be possible today at all when I was at school informed my life. May I mention a couple? Mm, sure. Because I wanted so many things and because my parents did not have the money to simply say, here you are, then here's the cash, go and get it. I can remember my mother gave me money to go and buy an overcoat. What did I do? I went and bought some books <laughs> and came home without a coat. Uh-huh. <laughs> mother just looked at me, gently shook heads from side to side, smiled and said, don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was when I, I, I would scavenge the library for, for books. Um, but there must have been some hidden appreciation and acknowledgement and even admiration from your parents in that choice well, you made of books over overcoat. My father was putting himself through London University in, a, in an age before, before ex-servicemen got grants. Uh-huh. Dad was working in the healthcare service as a physiotherapist after the war uh-huh. to put himself through London University, and eventually he became an Egyptologist. So I was growing up in a home where Dad was spending his evening studying and several days a week going to university while working to pay for my fees at school. And so I was coming home with homework, and Dad was doing university work. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and so we, I grew up in an entire home of learning. Um, so so uh, I, I interrupted you. You were saying there was two things. Yeah. One story about the, yeah. the overcoat. Yeah. What was the yeah. other? In the school vacations, in the summer school holidays, I went to work um, at a hospital, part-time work. And in those days, um, I think I suppose I'd be classed as what they call a porter today. Uh-huh. I became a darkroom technician um, working in the x-ray department. And I also was asked on a number of occasions to quick dash into theatre and watch the oxygen flow while this operation is underway. So I was there in, at the age of 14 working as, as, as a, a part-timer in my school vacation, watching the oxygen flow without my eyes daring to blink as that little float went up and down between the margins I had to keep it to. The precision there was vital. And then on another occasion, I worked down in the mortuary where they were bringing bodies in off the first motorways that were being built. And that grounds you, and that matures you. And so I saw death, I saw the carnage of terrible, you know, headless torsos were brought in, and then the police would bring in the head the next day. And I was still in my teens and gathering, yeah. and, and that, that robustly gave me an awareness of what real-world life was all about. It made you grow up very quickly. So, David, you were with NASA between 1965 and 1984. What did you do immediately after you left NASA? Well, I really left because there was an opportunity to develop an expanding commitment to commercial space operations uh, outside the United States. And it was largely driven by the advent of the communication satellite. And many nations wanted their own communication satellite system. And they were beginning to get onto a production line. And I was getting very, very involved when I was with NASA as being what I guess today loosely you'd call a troubleshooter with industry, going out to collect data and information to report back to the various field centers and increasingly to NASA headquarters, who was taking a very stronger and much broader international interest in the side of its own activities which depended on international cooperation because in the post-Apollo era and remember of course we had the last moon landing in December 72 then we had the Skylab missions in 73, 74 and Apollo stories in 75 it had been hoped to have shuttle operations flying by 78 or 79 but that was never going to work that was far too early for, for the development of such a vehicle like that so so really from the late 1970s when NASA had to work with a much much lower budget they realized they had to to have cooperative ventures and get somebody else's 
taxpayers <laughs> to pay for, for a lot of the things that NASA wanted to do. And that's where you got, for instance, the European Space Agency, which formed in the mid-70s out of ALDO and ESRO, uh, the European Space Research Organization and the European Launcher Development Organization, um, commissioned by NASA to develop uh, Space Lab, which was a laboratory fixed into the shuttle to considerably expand the internal volume. It was carried in the cargo bay, um, and the the deal was that Europe would develop this. The original plan, and it, and, and it was quite a complex plan, and didn't quite work out as the Europeans wanted, because NASA initially contracted for five Space Labs, pressurized modules, which would be built in Germany, and pallets, exposed pallets of scientific equipment, essentially rigid structures contained within the cargo bay that could carry all manner of things, including satellites to eject out into Earth orbit. Um, and so this multi-purpose shuttle came along on the back of a cooperative deal with Europe. So suddenly NASA, driven by headquarters directives, wanted a very, very strong uh, place in essentially retaining leadership of not only national but now international space activities. And it was as a result of that that everything changed. So you left NASA in uh, 1981, which was the first space shuttle launch. So by 1984, the purpose of your consulting company was to match the um, potential for commercial launch using the space shuttle with uh, international customers? Yes, that's right. And uh, mine was not the first um, space consulting company in the UK. Jerry Webb, who is the current president of the British Interplanetary Society, he had commercial space technologies, which became and retained a very expansive and highly successful business venture. Um, mine was very much more on the engineering consulting side for American programs. And Jerry built a, a, a base of operations on his consulting side, which preceded mine, um, with the business community in London and also with, with launches on Russian launch vehicles. And the interesting aspect of that was that because I was hooked up to organizations like McDonnell Douglas, who were building the Delta launch vehicles, and also General Dynamics, at that time General Dynamics, with the Atlas launch vehicles, here was the, the launch opportunity for all those interested countries um, from the Middle East right across through India into Southeast Asia. And that's what really formed the basis of the business that I was in. And I would be taking business leaders from London. We had an office in London and also one at Trenton in New Jersey. And I would be introducing the space world, this new space world, to Lloyds of London, I had a large contingent of underwriters and also brokers. I think, I think I was the only consulting company that served both the brokers and the underwriters because historically they're on opposite sides fighting for lower premiums on one side and higher premiums on the other. Um, and, and the explosion of business in the mid-1980s was colossal and was equal to, I was informed, um, to the development of the jumbo jet era in aviation, which totally transformed the aviation insurance industry. And the interesting thing is here that 60% of global space insurance, as it is today, was in London, was through Lloyd's of London. And so to be right at the core of this enabling asset, which was both the financial structures and we were consulting with both the banks like Morgan Grenfell um, and, the, and the bigger financial institutions as well as with Lloyds of London. And so I was taking many of those financial, those financiers and insurers over to the States. We would hold meetings in NASA headquarters and I, I would have had arranged the NASA chief engineer at the time was Stan Weiss who directly under the administrator and sometimes working with the administrator on this, Jim Beggs, who was introducing the internet or what became the International Space Station onto the world stage, um, taking those guys over to headquarters and then flying them down 
to the Kennedy Space Center we, where we would get tickets for them to have seats at the VIP stand watching a shuttle launch and, and introducing NASA to the business community while introducing space to the business community here in London and in New York. And from that, speared off into what amounted to, um, and my diary shows this, that for three consecutive years I had more than 100 international flights each year and supporting to all these many countries presentations to government and to bodies, uh, essentially hooking them up with the production line communication satellites at the time, the HS-376 communication satellite, with the Delta launch vehicle. And it was from that that the extraordinary um, cascading series of events found me actually in the extraordinary position of stopping a shuttle flight from taking place. Oh, go on. That's another story. Uh, Go on, briefly describe how that came about then. Well, well, okay. Um, I was consultant to the insurance companies that had to clear the payloads for certification on launch. And I would regularly call meetings in Lloyds of London if there was some dynamic major issue with a shuttle. Well, one of the most important things that happened to torpedo confidence, I was at the launch of, of Westar 6 and Palapa B2 on STS-41B in February 1984. And they each carried payload assist modules, PAM motors. These were solid propellant perigee motors or uh, motors which would once they were attached to, to each of the satellites and NASA in the shuttle could launch up, up to four of these XS-376s and it was particularly these two on that one. One for Indonesia, Palapa B2 and I'd spent a lot of time down in Indonesia um, and was, was actually consultant on the OSAT program which also was buying 376s so there was a huge massive explosion of commercial interest in all this well these two commercial satellites had to be financed by a banking system through London and insured through Lloyd's so clearance had to be given for each of these flights um, just as the banks cleared it were happy, yes, that's okay, you've got the money to do this, it's a satisfactory launch, our, our consultants say that's good. Insurers had to say whether they cleared a particular payload for launch. Well, with STS-41B in February 84, both of these satellites were sent off sequentially in separate orbits, and both of them blew the cones off the back of the payload assist module because there was a fatigue error in the filament-wound cones on the back of these booster rockets. Essentially, they would be released. Um, they would be under attitude control from the ground. And then as the shuttle drifted away to a safe distance, the motors would fire to put them in, into a geosynchronous transfer orbit um, from where they would be stabilized at stationary orbit. And before they got out of Earth or, or before they get out of low Earth orbit, the cones blew off and so the motor sputtered to a halt and burned through without providing the velocity that was needed to get them into these geosynchronous transfer orbits. Now, on the back of this, we, we were all scurrying like crazy to try to find out. I, I was seconded on to the failure review board at McDonnell Douglas, who was the designer of these PAM motors payload assist modules, which were used both for Delta launch vehicles as well as for shuttle launches. As a pole, the, the PAM-D was the Delta equivalent and the PAM-A was a bigger motor for equivalent of Atlas launches. So these two could launch on either shuttle or Delta II and that's why they flew the PAM. Now, when it came to looking at the recovery procedure in my position on the board with McDonnell Douglas for the solution to what had gone wrong with these motors, a series of NDT tests were carried out, non-destructive testing, where they were taking other PAMs, which were a commercial product, and so they were very expensive, and they certainly couldn't afford, because it was a corporate program, to just simply test these to destruction in order to establish a failure point. Now, I insisted that it was essential for demonstration at the point at which these cones would fail before successive 
customers on later flights wanted to put their satellites on these PAM motors. So McDonnell Douglas was going around to get a solution as to why they'd failed, but were only testing non-destructively. And that really only shows you part of the performance curve and only gives you part of the data you need to calculate the probability of another PAM failing. Because these were... These were very, very expensive satellites, over $100 million for each of these satellites, and that's a big loss to an insurance industry. Um, so the insurance industry was very, very wary. So I had to give a clearance, and when McDonnell Douglas were not prepared to do non-destructive testing, um, I refused to sign off, and the insurance companies that were involved in the, the underwriters and the lead underwriter particularly uh, refused to to retain insurance unless destructive testing was carried out to build a proper performance baseline. I see. So the whole idea was to make sure that the these motors were reliable and because of the uncertainty yes. associated yes. with that, the potential yes. um, payload yes. was in at risk yes. and indeed yes. perhaps even the space shuttle. Yes. So how long well, was, was the... commercial. Ah, yeah. So how long was the uh, shuttle launch delayed by? Because national prestige was, was at risk here, um, although it was a commercial operation from McDonnell Douglas, the U.S. government did not want this to stall on the basis that McDonnell Douglas didn't want to pay out to build a PAM and then completely destroy it without a commercial return on it. Mm. Because the numerical spread on these things was very low and, and the profit would just have been completely wiped out on the whole project if you'd done that. And so the uh, the Arnold Engineering and Research Centre, operated by the Air Force, picked up on this did a destructive test, we got the baseline and we were able to say, okay, go launch. But the payloads were held and the shuttle launch could not take place until we had had that verification. There was a concern um, that really came back to bite during the months up to the Challenger disaster, a very dark period when when the inevitability of an accident became very clear to me and in fact to that same group of bankers and insurers i issued a report three months before a highly confidential report uh, which indicated that we were heading for a disaster with the shuttle on what i was observing i was doing a series of investigations over on the west coast with regard to a generation of improvements to increase the reliability and safety of the shuttle We knew that there were insufficient computers and simulators at the Johnson Space Center. Crews would be lining up in the corridors because the frequency of the missions was pushing so hard and fast. And we had a management structure that had been brought in in manned spaceflight at Washington headquarters that was absolutely, totally committed to increasing the flight rate. Ariane was coming online. There was concerns that the monopoly on launch capabilities for commercial customers would evaporate and so the reputation of the shuttle program relied on it flying very frequently and every time as advertised. I came back from the west coast from manufacturers where we wanted to introduce the filament wound boosters on the shuttle to make them more reliable and not to have the problem with the o-rings and the segments and the whole desperate challenge to reliability that that brought. Now I came to Washington headquarters, and it was, it was I think, in the fall, early winter of um, 85. And I had a meeting with Jim Abramson, who was in charge of all manned space operations for NASA, directly under the administrator. Jim Abramson was a fine man, and I don't wish any, any negative aspects upon his character or indeed the way he ran spaceflight operations. He had been responsible in NATO for the F-16 fighter program, which introduced the F-16 to so many air forces in Europe. He was a hard-hitting, performance-orientated individual who later would head President Reagan's SDI program. But I came from the West Coast to report to Jim Abramson under Jim Briggs, the administrator, um, about these improvements. And I can remember that evening in his office, it was a big office, and there was a big flag of the United States behind his desk one side and 
NASA flag to the other side and this open windows. And we were talking about all these improvements of the company, companies who were building the boosters and the orbiters wanted to inject because they were very concerned that the shuttle was not safe enough to fly. And I started talking about these with Jim Abramson and he had to be called away for a phone call just out of office. This was after work hours in the evening and it was dark. And his office window faced up the mall toward the Capitol building, that dome that is so redolent of, of the Beltway and, you know, Washington and the nation's capital. And rising over the dome of the Capitol was the moon. It was a full moon. And I sat there for moments and mused, alone in that room, big, big office of his, while he was out taking his call. And I mused over the risks we were still running. And I reflected back on the Apollo fire and on the uh, near-miss we'd had with Apollo 13. He came back, and we resumed the conversation, and he was gently rocking back and forth in, in his big office chair, hands clasped behind his neck, just listening quite silently to all I was saying that his manufacturers wanted. And suddenly he brought his hands round from behind his neck and he put them on his desk and clasped his fingers together and looked at me straight in the face and he said, Dave, he said, I've got only one mandate on this desk, to fly on time, every time. And the hairs went up on the back of my neck and that was the end of my meeting. He wanted to hear none of that. <laughs> Three months later, we lost seven astronauts on Challenger exactly because we had not paused the program to introduce filament-wound boosters which never would have been susceptible to the problems that caused the loss of Challenger and the death of the astronauts. You know, um, just about every human endeavour has risk associated with it and no uh, anything to do with space, just the more so. And risk assessment and risk management is a particularly area uh, of uh, interest which uh, maybe we can speak about at greater length next time. But thank you very much for sharing that. Can I ask you, uh, about that time in the early 1980s, um, India uh, ordered four of its satellites from the US, Ford Aerospace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your involvement with that? And how uh, do you have any insights into that particular project? Yes, insight on insight. Yes, the <laughs> program. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and it was largely because, because of my involvement with the business community in London and New York that I was, I was really tasked with keeping a very close watch on what satellites were being offered to customers. We were very concerned about the INSAT program because Boeing was producing the satellite that had been offered to India and bought by it which was a failed military, all singing, all dancing, all serving satellite. And India at the time wanted to combine earth resources and communications. And Boeing offered this satellite to India, hyped up its performance, and really sold them a vehicle which was untried, which had many potential flaws with it, and which had not been accepted as a design by the US Air Force as being too risky to put too many eggs in one basket. And unfortunately, the program began to fail badly as a result of the fact that they had been offered a satellite which was very, very flawed in its design. So there was a very hard learning curve. And I think in, in regard to the fact that I, I, I knew the Indian Space Program because I'd been part of the SITE program in the 1970s, um, using a very powerful American communications research and development satellite with a huge umbrella-like dish. The ATS-6. the equator, yeah, to, to be able to look. ATS, the Applications Technology Satellite Program, was an R&D program, essentially, the, the last one, really, that NASA did before handing over research to private industry in, in this huge commercial explosion. Um, but that program, the site program, gave me a great... Um, it Im impressed me greatly with regard to the commitment and, and the passion and the energy that was there within those who were building a nascent Indian space program, 
stage program for India. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, was, I was quite um, concerned about the way that India had been treated in this regard. And I think they were so enthusiastic, I think they missed a trick, frankly, and were sold a satellite which they never should have been sold. And I felt, because of my background experience with these folks in the Indian Space Research Organization, that I had huge, huge regard and respect for, that um, really this acted as a stimulus, because they were very well aware of the problems of the INSAT program that began, and took much of it in-house. And I think the success of India's space program today is that they did reach a point where... Um, working both with Americans and at other times with the Russians and being being very apolitical in their alignment and association did them so much good because they got the best of, of what was already highly developed programs outside India mm. and then went their own way. And, and I really, I can't tell you how impressed I have been, far more than I am with China, far more than I am with, with other nascent space industries. It was the kind of perfection and and due diligence that we saw with the Australians with their OSAT program, and that's, that's another story. But India itself, I, came, I felt, came to have a sense of independence because of the problems with the American satellite in the very, very first of the INSAT vehicles that they bought. And was it was, it, was your concern that they had the, a single satellite with uh, Earth observation, uh, meteorology and communication in a single satellite rather than what was then the norm, have in individual satellites with a specific function. Was it the design of that particular satellite or perhaps uh, the, the actual building and uh, um, contractual arrangements that uh, were around uh, implementing it? The concept was a cul-de-sac. It was, de- it was a dead-end non-starter. And From a design point of view of the spacecraft? Yes, well, ah. from integrating so many functions. Yeah, and okay. You, you know, essentially, that was the problem. And, and it was an attempt by the manufacturer to sell something that was unique. As we began to get serious miniaturization, the idea popped up, aha, we can put many functions onto the same platform mass and the same power requirement. It didn't work. And it was, it was, really, it was really only because India felt it really wanted to push forward, that it was persuaded that this relatively low cost, and it was relatively low cost simply because nobody else wanted it. <laughs> and, 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 and that was, um, I'm going to get myself into awful trouble on this, but really, <laughs> you know, we're, we're long past it now. This, this, this really is 40 years ago. Oh, yeah. and, and all these manufacturers have changed mm. their ethos. But in those early phases, because America suddenly realized, wow, there's a big world out there that's going to buy our products. And I was part of that. And I think in a way you feel a personal responsibility when you go, you know, to China, to Thailand, to Indonesia, to Australia, uh, to India itself, um, to, to bring together presentations for grouped government organizations. And, and we were essentially showing whether it was agriculture, uh, people interested in natural resource applications, communications. Indonesia has 13,000 individual islands. They needed to transcend the early um, hard wiring of communication systems that, that the British did so much to, to spread throughout the world during empire and during the first half of the 20th century. Suddenly, these countries like Indonesia needed to transcend all that and leap right over the hardwired era to satellite-based communications, which they did very effectively, hence Palapa satellites, and Canada with ANIC in order to provide to the ethnic minorities mm-hmm. at least an equitable level of communication as the big urban centers in, the, in, in uh, more southern latitudes of Canada. So all of this was building, and the, the success of the American space program, not least on the back of the Apollo missions, just created this vast international awareness, my goodness, we want a bit of this. <laughs> and so essentially, and, you know, companies with less than an ethical rudder on their boat went out trying to sell anything and everything. Not all of it worked. And that was the problem inside. If I can turn now to your writing, uh, you have an incredibly uh, powerful record in writing. Uh, according to Wikipedia, you've got 
over 110 books that you've published. Uh, won't go through all those 110, but can you tell us what's coming? <laughs> can you tell us what's coming this year? Well, because of Apollo at 50, um, and uh, because of, of the celebration of the first landing on the moon 50 years ago this year, uh, there has been a driven demand from the market for books. Um, I, I have a general book out, and all these round about May this year, um, for Arcturus Publishing, which haven't, haven't actually published anything on space in their publishing life, but, but, but they're a very strong presence in the market, and they asked me to do a book on Apollo 11, essentially to the uh, lay market that isn't terribly familiar with space. So I've done a book on that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, high, highly illustrated all these. Uh, coming out on the, on the newsstands, and in the United States specifically, which is a bookazine, that's, that's these, um, about the size of a book, about 140 pages, but, but they're soft cover um, and perfect bound. In other words, they, they, they're stitch bound and not actually with staples, mm-hmm. like, like just a weekly or monthly magazine would be. And that also is on Apollo 11, but it gives a much more detailed exploration of all of the missions and all of the following missions. Um, but mostly centred about a, a full third of it is about the run-up to and the actual operation of Apollo 11. And for my ever-burgeoning Haynes series, for Haynes Publishing, which started their space series about 10, 11 years ago, and I've, I've now written 15 books for them and, and do about a couple of year of those for Haynes, I've got one out to pair with Chris Riley's Apollo 11 book that was first brought out 10 years ago, so that's going to be redone under a new cover and uh-huh. launched as well, in, a, in association with my book, which is looking at the landings and the missions following Apollo 11. Because, you know, one of the things which really is very difficult for, get, for people to, to really get hold of is the fact that we considered Apollo 11 the last of the development flights. People think of Apollo Mission 7, 8, 9, 10 as development, and then Apollo 11 as the fulfillment. Apollo 11 provided just the final segment of engineering verification going from close around the moon to actually landing on the surface um, to properly start the Apollo program, which properly started with Apollo 12. And there were three of those planned, 12, 13, 14, uh, which with the basic equipment extended to two spacewalks, two and a half days on the moon. And then Apollo's 15, 16, 17, which were the big J-series missions, three days on the moon, three periods of eight hours each on EVA, and the lunar roving vehicle. And it's the story of that which continues the Haynes coverage, and so that's my third book out this year in association with Apollo. They're totally different. Dr. David Baker, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Gabriel. Always a pleasure.